When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. So this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, and this is a particularly special episode. First of all, we have our first repeat guest for the special series. Alicia from Civics and Coffee is joining us. Alicia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be back. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here, and especially for the cabinet member that we're going to be covering. We'll get to that in a moment, but for folks who haven't heard of Civics and Coffee yet, this is the podcast that you really should be listening to if you're not already. I'm going to give Alicia a moment to tell us about Civics and Coffee, what her podcast is about, what got her into podcasting, and just what her interests are in history podcasting. Well, thank you, Jerry. Uh, So Civics and Coffee is a U.S. history podcast that drops episodes every Saturday. And I try to cover topics, events uh, throughout United States history, both things that people may know about and the stories that they may not remember learning in high school. And the whole goal of Civics and Coffee is really to give you your history lesson in the time it takes you to drink a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, whatever your beverage of choice is. So I try to keep them short, 15, 20 minutes maximum. And hopefully by the end of the episode, you all walk away with wanting to know more. That's always my goal is just just pepper, pepper you with the information. So been going almost two years now. August will be the second anniversary. Can't believe it. Um, It was a project created during the times of COVID, but it was uh, actually originated from a conversation that I was having with a friend of mine who we were talking about the very historic times of 2020, everything that was going on between the presidential election and this resurgence of civil rights movements and so on and so forth. And he mentioned how he didn't really like history, but liked talking about history with me because I made it interesting and fun. And so that just, I knew, well, you just didn't have the right history teachers. So um, that's kind of the the inspiration behind the show. And it's been such a wild and crazy ride. And I've met some amazing, amazing people, yourself included. You're one of the first to welcome me to this amazing community. So I'm happy to be here and I cannot wait to dive into our topic. Absolutely. And I've had plenty of mornings that I've started off with my cup of coffee and Alicia. And I just love that in that 15 minutes or so, you provide your listeners with so much information. And I know I'm always left wanting to know more. So, and I know that other listeners of yours are the same way. You really, you really help to inspire folks to dive deeper into history. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. I really appreciate it. And like I said, you are, to me, you are the, the gold star of podcasting. Your research is, is bar none. So I always look to you as my guiding light. So I'm happy to be here. 
Absolutely. And so I mentioned that this was a special episode. We're breaking a couple of precedents first with a repeat guest, but also unlike usual, usually with the special series, I don't tell the guests who we're going to be talking about beforehand. This is the first time that I've broken that precedent. Alicia knows who we will be talking about, and there's a reason for that. But first, since all of you don't know, unless you've looked at the episode name, who we're talking about, <laughs> let's just go ahead and say that we are talking about John Marshall. Now, Alicia, I know you have probably come across Marshall just as I have in your research over the years. I know he's been one of those figures that I've wanted the opportunity to get to know more about, but just haven't been able to get to that point in Chill Nail. Yeah, I, he is such a monumental figure in history. And yes, I've, I've come across his name just a, just a couple of times, you know, just, just a few episodes. And so I actually debated doing a deeper dive into him on the show myself. And um, as I'm sure we will discover as we have our conversation today, there's just so much to cover. He's, he's got such a wide breadth of experiences and his impact and legacy is just so large that I didn't know how I could necessarily put my arms around it. And so when you reached out and said, John Marshall, I was like, oh, yes, thank you. I can get to talk about this guy and and really do a deep dive and uh, have some fun with with a friend as well. So I'm so excited to talk about him. And I'm sure that there are many folks in the audience who, of course, have heard of John Marshall and especially in the context of him being Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now, the way we kind of snuck him into the series is that he had a tenure as Secretary of State, as we'll learn a bit more about shortly. But it's really that time on the Supreme Court that he is most well-known for. And that's why it has always been a struggle to me to try and do a deeper dive, because with presidencies, we're, of course, focused on the presidency and mm -hmm. Marshall as chief justice does touch upon presidential history from time to time. But the only time that he's really a major part of the narrative is this time as secretary of state. Mm -hmm. Now this gets to part of why I revealed to Alicia who we were going to be talking about beforehand, because there is a ton of material out there about John Marshall Gene Edward Smith's book alone on the, that biography of John Marshall is over 800 pages. And so this is quite different than many of the cabinet members that we've discussed thus far in the series where it's just you can't even find when they were born, much less right. much else about them. And so then I had to go through the question of, well, how do we cover John Marshall and do him justice, somebody who is such a pivotal figure in the early republic and American history. And so this is actually going to be the first of a two-part episode. I'm going to have some other special guests who are going to be joining us for the second part who are actually interpreters at the John Marshall House in Richmond, Virginia. And so we're going to be talking, focusing in a bit more on his time as Chief Justice. And so that frees Alicia and myself up to focus on his early career, his rise, that time as Secretary of State. And then we'll go through a bit of his tenure as Chief Justice. But that second episode, we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive on that. But I wanted Alicia to have a chance to 
look into that a bit more as she felt was needed so that we could accurately rank him at the end. So with all of that said, because there is so much to talk about with John Marshall, (laughs) I say, let's go ahead and get started. Let's do it. I've got my coffee ready. Excellent. So John Marshall was born on September 24th, 1755, and he was the oldest son of Thomas and Mary Randolph Keith Marshall. Now, I included those names in there because, as Mary's name suggests, she was a member of the famous Randolph family that have come up time and again, both in the narrative series and the special series. And through this connection, this meant that John Marshall was related to Thomas Jefferson and John Randolph of Roanoke, as well as other prominent members of the Randolph family. However, the Marshalls weren't really close to those Randolph relations because Mary's mother had eloped with someone considered by the Randolphs to be beneath her station. And so that segment of the family was kind of the the black sheep of the family, so to speak. And so Mary's mother, who conveniently enough was also named Mary because that's how they did back in the day and really wanted to confuse genealogists in the future. (laughs) They did not name their children to help historians at all. No, not (laughs) at all. (laughs) And so this elder Mary, after her first husband's death, had married the Reverend James Keith, who was an Episcopal minister in Fauquier County. And this county is going to be very important for the family, as we'll see moving forward. So, you know, that's talking about kind of Mary's side of the family. But Thomas Marshall, John's father, was the son of another John Marshall. Here we go again. They rotate like the five (laughs) names in the family. So this John Marshall, John Marshall's grandfather, was dubbed John of the Forest due to his estate. And this lineage in Virginia on this side of the family went back to his great-grandfather, John, who immigrated to Virginia in 1650. Now, Thomas Marshall, in his early days, had assisted George Washington with his surveying work. Hmm. And so really starting to get those connections here, even though they're kind of in this branch of the Randolph family that we don't talk about. (laughs) Thomas is starting to build himself up, and in 1753, he accepted an order from Lord Fairfax to serve as a surveyor and land agent for Fairfax in Fauquier County. It was here that he and Mary met and were wed in 1754. Now, altogether, the Marshalls would have 15 children. Jesus. Now, that's, that's enough. But also, it seems like all of them lived to adulthood, which was very unusual for the time. Wow. You know, we've had so many instances that we've talked about children passing away and and miscarriages, but it seems like the marshals hung in there. And so just a quick note about a couple of John's notable siblings before we move forward, but his brother Thomas, who was born in 1761, served in the Revolutionary War before moving to Kentucky and serving in the Constitutional Convention of 1799 there. His brother James Markham, who was born in 1764, also fought in the Revolutionary War and served for a brief time as a U.S. Circuit Court judge for the District of Columbia. And finally, his brother Lewis, who was born in 1773, studied medicine before becoming president of First, Washington College in Virginia, which we now know of as Washington and Lee University, at least for the time being. 
I know they're talking about possibly changing the name, but right now that's what it's called. But then he also became president of Transylvania University in Kentucky. And so a couple of things to point out here, you know, A, I want to note that John and his family also had other folks who were involved in politics, who were involved in the judiciary. But then also you notice Kentucky keeps coming back up and it will as well for the family moving forward. But we'll get to that in a moment. Though the Marshalls would ultimately become a prominent family, at the time of John's birth, they were still living in a two-room log cabin in Germantown. And this was still a very rustic setting. So, you know, we think of folks from Virginia and we've seen like with Jefferson, Washington, they come from pretty prominent families. But this is, you know, this is a two room log cabin in a rustic setting. So John was described in his early days as having, quote, strong and penetrating eyes beaming with intelligence and good nature. Unfortunately, he would only have one year of formal schooling, Mm. but this year was important for at least one reason, because he actually met James Monroe during that one year of formal schooling. So we're starting to see these folks coming together, these names that become prominent in the early Republic. Even though he only had one year of formal schooling, he did read voraciously, including such light reading (laughs) As the Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, which was a common source for legal education at the time. And he's also noted as reading Alexander Pope's philosophical poem, An Essay on Man. I mean, total beach reads. I don't know what you're talking about. I I know, right? I mean, this, this is what you take. You know, you just get your beach blanket out. You want to relax? Pick up some Blackstone. (laughs) Let's let's read about the law. (laughs) All in one sitting. Totally. All in one sitting. (laughs) Be sure to put on the sunscreen. (laughs) You're going to be there for a while. (laughs) Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. But he did receive some tutelage from the Reverend James Thompson, who was a deacon who lived with the Marshalls for a bit. And this was apparently a deal in exchange for his food and lodging. He tutored the children. and This was something that happened from time to time in those days. Yeah. Now, Thomas Marshall really played an active role in John's education, and Marshall later credited his father, quote, for anything valuable which I may have acquired in my youth. He was my only intelligent companion and was both a watchful parent and an affectionate friend. No. So really a close relationship with his father, and this continues on as we'll see. Now, in terms of Thomas Marshall, his father, 
Thomas grew more prosperous as the years went on, and he was ultimately able to purchase an estate that was known as Oak Hill in 1773, on which he built a colonial-style farmhouse. Due to his growing stature in the colony, Thomas was first awarded the office of High Sheriff for the county in 1767, and then served numerous terms in the colony's House of Burgesses. So he is really a person on the rise at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, despite the benefits that his ties with the colonial governing class had brought to him, Thomas was an ardent supporter of what came to be known as the Patriot Cause, and he served on the Virginia Convention that declared the Old Dominion's independence from Great Britain. And so now we get to the point we're getting to the Revolutionary War. We're starting to see that build up. And in 1775, Thomas Marshall organized a militia regiment that would come to be known as the Culpeper Minutemen and led the battalion at the rank of major. He was then given a commission as a colonel and led the 3rd Virginia Regiment. Thomas and his forces served at the battles of Brandywine and Germantown and suffered through the harsh winter at Valley Forge before being sent south to join with forces there. Thomas, at this point, kind of had a, a rough go of it because he served a tenure as the commanding officer at Yorktown, but then him and his pr- troops were put under the command of General Benjamin Lincoln, and they were actually present when Lincoln surrendered his forces to the British at Charleston on May 12, 1780. So Uh-oh. all of these big moments in the Revolutionary War, and John Marshall's father is present for them and was oh, even yeah. taken prisoner by the British. But before we forget whose episode we're actually doing, because we're not, we're not <laughs> doing Thomas Marshall's episode, he didn't make it to the cabinet, but let's go back to John Marshall. Naturally, John got a start with his father, Thomas, in the 3rd Virginia Regiment. His father put together this regiment, and John joined it under his command. But John would go on to get a commission as a lieutenant in the 11th Virginia Regiment, and ultimately rose to the rank of captain. So, like his father, John, too, would be present for the Battle of Brandywine and the winter at Valley Forge. So, you know, you've got the marshals, and I mentioned a couple of his siblings were also in the Revolutionary War. So the family is really involved and really invested in the Patriot cause. Yeah, really committed. Yeah. As described by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, quote, The war undoubtedly toughened Marshall. For five years, he had exposed himself to concentrated risk as a light infantry officer. Even though he had this rise, he was rising in the ranks. Marshall's military career ultimately came to rather of a nondescript end, beginning with his being furloughed in December 1779, as the commission of so many of the troops in his regiment expired that they could not put together a sufficient fighting force without the action of the Virginia state government to raise more troops. And as governments have done from time to time over the years... (laughs) They decide, well, you know, there's the thing that we really should be doing, fighting for our independence, but we might have to spend some money for that. So let's not do that. (laughs) So Marshall was just kind of in limbo for a bit. He was furloughed, but he used the time to his advantage. He went back home, him and his fellow Virginians, they, since they were furloughed, they're like, well, let's just go back home. And he decided to start studying law at William and Mary in 1780. So he's like, I've got this time on my hands. Why not? You know, I've I've read that book on the beach, you know. Yeah. 
why not go into law? As described by Smith, quote, Captain Marshall was popular among his classmates and, being older and more experienced, he was often looked to for leadership. In that capacity, Marshall took advantage of every opportunity to emphasize what he had learned from military service and to stress the importance of a strong national government. And this would be a theme that would come up time and again in Marshall's career moving forward. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was like, and it begins, the strong national government. (laughs) Exactly. Even at this still early phase of his career, this is one of the cornerstones for Marshall. Though the time they studied law at William & Mary was short, it was also rather revolutionary. This was a new idea of actually going to college to study law because for the most part, and we'll even see this decades after, it wasn't really a formal education that most lawyers got. Instead, they would be apprenticed to a lawyer. They would read legal commentaries like Blackstone, and that's how they would learn the law. And then they'd sit for the bar and get accepted to the bar, but they didn't necessarily go to a classroom to study. And so Marshall took this new approach, and it was actually only the second series of lectures that was given at William & Mary that Marshall participated in. And these lectures were given by one of the preeminent lawyers in the state, George Wythe, who was also the mentor for Thomas Jefferson and other prominent Virginia lawyers around the time. Adding this to his previous knowledge of Blackstone, Marshall successfully applied for and was admitted to the bar sometime in July or August of 1780. But he was still commissioned as an officer at the time, so he decided, you know, we've got the law thing that I can fall back on, you know, this little thing. But let me go and see about this whole military career. So he went back to (laughs) Philadelphia later in the year. He tried to seek a new commission for the Army. You know, hey, I'm, I'm good to go. I'd like to fight. Just put me in a regiment. Really, at that point... Philadelphia, the northern states, that wasn't really the focus of the fighting. It was more in the south. And so there really wasn't much for Marshall to do. Now, this time, so I mentioned, you know, he applied for the bar July or August 1780, 1781. We're going to see more action in Virginia. And so you would think that this would have prompted the Virginia state government to call up more troops or reactivate Marshall's regiment. But no. They were like, <laughs> you know, the British are invading. It's a, it's fine. It's fine. We can handle it. We can handle it. <laughs> so finally, Marshall just got tired of this. He was like, you know, I've been in limbo for months. I you know, got my legal education and all that. So he w- he was ready to move on with his life so he went ahead and resigned his commission in february 1781 and started to focus on his civilian career but before we get the impression that john's only focus was on professional aspirations let's take a moment to discuss peggy ambler now the amblers were a prominent family in virginia and peggy's father jacqueline had served as collector of customs at yorktown and as a member of the council of state He would go on to be elected as state treasurer in 1782 and actually held this post for the rest of his life. So Hmm. he was pretty prominent and well-known in Virginia and well-connected. Thomas Marshall knew Jacqueline and was a frequent visitor at their home. But as noted by Smith, quote, 
Under ordinary circumstances, a leading Tidewater family such as the Amblers would have had little intercourse with the rough-hewn marshals of Fauquier County. But this was a different time. This was during the Revolution. And the Amblers had actually suffered financially as a result of the Revolution. And so, quote, it was the combination of the Amblers' financial difficulties and the marshals' military renown that bridged the gap. So the Amblers were coming down, the marshals were going up, and they met somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Now, Polly, whose full name was Mary Willis Ambler, was born on March 18, 1766, and was the second daughter of Jacqueline and Rebecca Ambler. As described by Smith, quote, Polly was not tall, probably five foot one or two, and she was slightly built with a prominent patrician nose, high cheekbones, a thin mouth, and arched eyebrows. Very interesting description. I mean, yeah, arched. What does arched eyebrows mean? What does arched <laughs> eyebrows mean? But she apparently had them. All right. Now, when Marshall saw her for the first time, he was supposedly, quote, immediately smitten. Aww. We're not really sure if the feeling was mutual, though, because <laughs> when he first proposed to her, she refused. <laughs> she was just playing hard to get. <laughs> and and that could be because it seems that for whatever reason, you know, whether she reevaluated it, she's like, okay, this Marshall guy, he's not that bad. Was he, he hadn't really been established in his legal career yet, right? Exactly. So that might be why this was the point he was making that transition from the military to start up his legal career. Their courtship does start up around 1780 and continues on past the end of the revolution. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Like you were saying, Alicia, you know, this was the time that he was really getting started in his legal career. So let's turn to that for a moment, because even though he found himself as a lawyer admitted to the bar, at this point, the war was still going on. So the courts were closed. There really wasn't much for him to do. Thus, he did what every self-respecting lawyer in the early Republic with some time on his hands did. What do you think he did, Alicia? (laughs) Oh, let's see. Did he try to uh, join the House of Burgess? Did he try to go into writing? (laughs) He ran for political office and was elected in 1781 to the Virginia General Assembly. Of course. I mean, if you're a lawyer in Virginia, you're ultimately going to end up in politics. (laughs) Now, while John's future would be built in Virginia, his father Thomas's fate led him elsewhere. During Jefferson's tenure as governor of Virginia, he actually asked Thomas Marshall to undertake a survey of the Kentucky Territory to the west of the Appalachian Mountains. As described by Smith, quote, the virgin wilderness of Kentucky afforded abundant opportunity for those willing to speculate. Thomas Marshall, who had a keen eye for investment, was one of the first to embrace that opportunity, and this move would establish the foundation for the subsequent wealth of the Marshall family. Thomas Marshall has had this military career, he was briefly held by the British, and now he's starting this land speculation and moving his family to Kentucky. So the end of the war saw the father and son who had been so close now separating and forging their own paths. Now, this doesn't mean that they wouldn't retain their links, of course. And John would get in on the land speculation in Kentucky, just like Thomas and other members of the family. And it really helped to have family members on site to help 
because unlike so many other Virginia land speculators who would just buy land and not have anybody there, not actually go and see it, the other marshals were there, Thomas and some of his brothers, to be able to look at the land, be able to make sure that it was being taken care of and all that. So that really helped John Marshall to see some profit from these land speculations. But we're finally at the end of the war. And with the end of the war, you start to have new opportunities available. And so, you know, John is starting this political career. And in 1782, you know, he, he had won a seat. And so he started working in the Virginia State Assembly. But he wouldn't be there long because it was about a year later, thanks to his soon to be father in law's influence, John Marshall was elected to the Council of State. And so the Council of State at this point was basically an advisory group for the governor. They had a bit more control than, you know, as we think of, you know, state secretaries of state or, or whatever, those state offices mm-hmm. nowadays, because Virginia at this time had kind of a weak governor system. And so the power, the Council of State was a bit more prominent and had more control over things than some of our state governments do nowadays. Hmm. Before we kind of dive into that, we should note that this brief tenure of his in the state legislature would give him an opportunity to make the acquaintance of many of the leading figures in Virginia politics, including some figures that we've talked about in the narrative as well as the special series, including Edmund Randolph, Richard Henry Lee, and he would get reacquainted again with James Monroe. Despite being so new to the scene, and you know, even though he his soon-to-be father-in-law's influence was probably helpful in this, we also have to look at that Marshall himself is starting to make a name for himself in politics, which could have yeah. also helped to, to prompt this appointment to the Council of State. And we actually have a visitor who observed some of the proceedings of the State Assembly while in Richmond. He noted of Marshall that he could already see that he was having an important influence in the the political schema of the state. Despite this, though, Marshall did have some detractors, and they were like, "Well, you know, this is still a young guy. Why? Why is he going to the Council of State now? You know, that's really that should be reserved for more of the elder statesmen of Virginia. You know, who does this guy think he is?" But Marshall actually wasn't the only younger member added to the Council of State at this time, because that colleague, James Monroe, who keeps coming back up, he also joined the Council of State. Both of them, they were the two youngest people to serve on the Council to that point. Wow. And so at this point, Benjamin Harrison V, who was also known as the signer, because he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Harrison was now governor of Virginia at this point that Marshall was serving on the Council of State. As noted by Smith, not only did, quote, Marshall's service on the Council of State bring him into daily contact with the problems of governing the sprawling Commonwealth of Virginia, which at that time extended from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, it ensured Marshall a steady source of income to provide for his new bride. And so (laughs) to your point earlier, Alicia, this may have been part of the reason that she declined earlier. You know, he was still trying to get his financial feet under his ground, and this allowed him a steady income so they could get married. Well, that's 
that's what the marriages were really back then, right? It was a really uh, a marriage. Of, it was a contract, right? Okay, well, I'll b- bear you some children, but you have to be financially viable. You have to be able to support a family. Um, so I'm not surprised that she she held off until he had proved himself worthy. If only she knew. <laughs> <laughs> if only she knew how high he was going to rise. But yep. Well. And that's the thing. So if you happen to like your spouse at the time, that was just seen as kind of a lanyard. It was it was something extra, mm-hmm. but it really was all about the finances. It was about being able to start to build a family, start to build a life together. And so they actually married on January 3rd, 1783, but he was still struggling, even though he had this steady income. He really didn't have, he didn't bring much wealth to the table at this point. And so, and and he also had very few legal clients, which was a supplement, but he really didn't have a big legal practice at the time. So they still struggled a bit in those first couple of years. The family also struggled due to Polly's ill health. The couple's first child, Thomas, again, same names (laughs) over and over. But this Thomas was born in July 1784. Unfortunately, the birth put such a strain on Polly that, quote, she was bedridden for weeks afterward. Wow. In 1786, their first daughter, who they named Rebecca, was born, but she only lived for a few days. Uh As described by Marshall biographer Joel Richard Paul, quote, Polly never completely recovered from the loss of her first daughter. When she lost another child the following autumn, she had an emotional collapse. They would eventually have 10 children total, though two would die in infancy, and Polly suffered two miscarriages. And Polly suffered from the physical and emotional strain of these pregnancies for the rest of her days. I'm sure. That's it's also, not easy, right? <laughs> no, ab- absolutely not. And and that's the thing, you know, we think of nowadays and and the fact that Marshall's John Marshall's parents had all those kids that actually lived to adulthood, that was a rarity. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the medicine that we do at the time, the the facilities that we do, and so childbirth was a very dangerous prospect, not just for the child, but also for the mother. And unfortunately, Polly was one of those that suffered physically from this, but then also that emotional strain. All those hormones. Yeah. Well, and the medical treatments of the time, right? They always thought bleeding was the answer to everything. And it's like, she get, she got enough of her fluids taken out of her. Like, she doesn't need any assistance. Just let her be, let her rest. Exactly. Um, yeah. I know that that's a trend for women during this time period. Just just let her rest, bring her some tea, something. Do not bleed her anymore. <laughs> now, from all accounts, John was very supportive and did what he could to provide for her. Again, from Paul, quote, For most of their married life, Polly's series of nervous breakdowns, severe migraines, wild mood swings, anxiety, and depression dominated their household but Marshall devoted himself to her. He assumed most of the household responsibilities that usually fell to women, such as shopping and cleaning the home. Visitors described his meeting them at the door with a broom and a dustpan. When Polly spent days in bed, 
Marshall insisted that everyone in the house must speak softly and avoid making any loud noises that could disturb her. Wow, what a partner. And again, you know, this is this is very atypical of the time, you know. This not every man at this time let, let's just go ahead and call a spade a spade. <laughs> not every person in the modern era would do yeah. this, would go above and beyond like this. So well, she reminds me a little bit just of her like her mental and physical health struggles. She reminds me a little bit of Louisa Adams, the wife of John Quincy Adams. And uh, John Marshall has a very different reaction than John Quincy. I, I know John Quincy eventually in, a, in, in his old age became a little bit more of a, of a caring and su- in supportive spouse. Um, but it just it's an interesting parallel between the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I definitely look forward to learning more about Louisa Adams. I think these did the second episode come out today. Yep, it did. So as we're, (laughs) as we're recording, I've got an episode waiting for me to (laughs) listen to after we get done. (laughs) So even though, you know, and, and, and this is also something to think about and, and we'll see more as we go along in his career. So he's got all this going on at home and he's trying to be supportive of his wife and his family. But this didn't mean that John Marshall wasn't ambitious when it came to his professional career. So, you know, at this point, he's on the Council of State and his most notable work during this tenure was the opinion he delivered to the council when Governor Harrison asked for the council's ruling in a matter involving the governor's powers. Now, the General Assembly had passed an act which allowed the governor to remove justices of the peace. But when Harrison was petitioned by officials from New Kent County to remove a local justice of the peace, rather than immediately take action, Harrison turned to his counsel for advice. Marshall concluded, and the counsel concurred, that the law that had been passed by the General Assembly, quote, violated the spirit, if not the letter, of the state's constitution, and thus was invalid. Now, to folks in the modern day, this seems like a given that the Constitution would be the supreme authority, greater than any state laws and statutes. But at the time, this idea of constitutional superiority was not settled in legal practice. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson felt that constitutional articles and provisions were equal to legislative acts. He didn't see that a Constitution, whether it was state or federal, should be the standard bear. Be held higher than just state laws that are passed by the General Assembly. But Marshall and others, including Edmund Randolph and George Wythe, instead pushed for the idea of what would come to be known as judicial review, which Alicia, you know, we'll be talking about <laughs> a bit more. Oh, yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. This <laughs> idea of judicial review and Marshall would play a role in this would be established as one of the basic tenets of the American judicial system. In addition to serving on the Council of State, Marshall also worked at this time to build up his legal practice in Richmond. And so we see, and we've seen with other folks in the special series, you know, as they've got these political offices, they're also building up their legal practices because they need both of those incomes to be able to support, and especially Marshall with a growing family, needed more money to be able to support them. As described by Paul, quote, 
Marshall's practice ranged from simple transactions such as leases, deeds, wills, and contracts to complex criminal and civil matters before judges throughout the state. He soon earned a reputation as a talented oral advocate. He could closely tailor an ungainly argument to appear more elegant and seductive. Just as important, he was always generous to his opponents in court and never condescended to juries or judges. In addition to having this wide breadth of legal experience and expertise, he's also trying to establish himself as having a good reputation, as somebody who you know you can get along with even if you're on opposite sides of the court of the case. Well, he was very charismatic, right? I mean, I I think you see that even in his military career, and it helped him throughout his political career, and of course, especially during his time on the Supreme Court. And it's just, it's interesting to kind of see how those, it's a building block, right? Mm -hmm. As he progresses, he's very, he stays humble and uh, gracious and is able to kind of get people onto, onto his way of thinking, which is really what you want to do as a lawyer, right? You want to be able to persuade people over to your side. And he definitely had a, a very interesting approach in how uh, how he tried to get people to to follow him and and listen to his arguments. So it's it's interesting to kind of hear how this is all happening in his in in his the early stages of his career, right? Absolutely. And you you hit on something with that, Alicia. You know, this is going to be a common thread that we see throughout Marshall's career. And I think arguably is part of the reason for his success in his mm-hmm. later career is this this idea of being able to reason with folks, to be able to persuade, to be able to reconcile, come to an agreement, a compromise. Mm-hmm. He did struggle at first, and especially as the end of the war brought more competition from other young lawyers who were returning from service in the Continental Army. So it kind of went from, you know, he was one of the few lawyers, but the courts were closed to the courts are open. And now there are tons of lawyers in the state. (laughs) Now, during this time that he's struggling financially, he apparently resorted to a practice that would be considered not only unethical, but illegal in the modern era. Basically, clients would give him funds for land purchases that they wanted to make in Kentucky and that they were working through Marshall to obtain. And so while Marshall was doing all the paperwork and making all the arrangements, rather than keeping those funds in a separate account, Marshall would instead put this money in with his own funds in his account book until the time came to actually pay the state agency for the purchase of the land for his clients. As described by Smith, quote, In effect, Marshall was giving himself an interest-free loan until his financial situation improved. It would be over a century later before the laws would establish regulations to end this practice, and it was something that other lawyers did as well. And to Marshall's credit, he always made good on providing the funds for the land purchases for his clients when they were needed. That was going to be my question. Did he ever renege on any of these deals? Um, while it's highly questionable, I feel like perhaps back then, just knowing how how un- underdeveloped the banking system and financial system was during this time period, y- you can't. It's one of those you can't put twenty twenty two lenses on a transaction in seventeen eighty five. It's they were different times, different expectations. So 
I'm glad that to know that he didn't ever back out of a deal because he accidentally spent that money. <laughs> and he didn't, but of course, others did. And that's yeah. part of the reason why this eventually became, you know, this is not an acceptable practice. We are going to make this illegal. And thankfully for Marshall, he didn't do that because, I mean, this this would have been devastating and was devastating for so many clients, for so many lawyers who just couldn't manage this. But Marshall did manage. He made sure the funds were there when they needed to be there. And it also helped him to be able to start to build up his finances to get on better footing. Now, after a couple of years on the council state, Marshall ultimately decided that he needed to make a change. As noted by Smith, quote, the judges in the general and chancellery courts before which he, i.e. Marshall, practiced, were becoming increasingly uncomfortable with a member of the Council of State appearing before them. In the eyes of some judges, Marshall's status as a council member gave him unfair advantage. And that's understandable. You know, here he is. He is somebody who is politically prominent in the state. And, oh, by the way, I've got a rule in this court case that he's arguing for this client. If I rule against him, is he going to do something politically against <laughs> me? Is he going to hold it against me? So you can understand why that would be seen as kind the of hesitation. a hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. It also took up a good amount of time, you know, this time on the Council of State because it was, you know, they were basically managing the state. This was the executive branch of the state. And so this took up a good amount of time for Marshall while he was trying to build up this legal career. He wasn't really able to devote himself fully to building up his practice. Thus, on April 1st, 1784, Marshall submitted his resignation from the council to Governor Harrison. Not only would his legal practice grow significantly after he was able to devote more of his time to it, but he was also re-elected to the Virginia House of Delegates representing Fauquier County. Though Marshall pushed for reform efforts in the state legislature, he increasingly reached a conclusion that the current state of affairs in terms of the government of the United States was untenable. So this was the Articles of Confederation, the Confederation government. Marshall was looking at this and saying, this really isn't working. We'll return more to that in a minute. But going back and, and really focusing in on his legal career and personal finances, slowly but surely, Marshall's state improved. Now, this is in part due to his own efforts and in part due to the support that was provided by his father and his father-in-law. So he had both of these folks working towards his advantage, trying to help to build up this young man and his family. Marshall's legal practice got a boost in 1786 when his friend and colleague Edmund Randolph was elected governor of Virginia. Now, Randolph, also a lawyer in Richmond, he turned over his legal practice to Marshall. You know, he's like, I'm going on to be governor. I really can't devote my time to my clients. So he handed it off to Marshall. Randolph had actually previously had his practice handed to him by Thomas Jefferson when Jefferson huh. became governor. So it's interesting how these clients are getting handed off from one prominent Virginia politician to another. And so now it's John Marshall's turn. And pretty strong legal minds, all three of them. So it's not it's not worse for the wear for these clients. They're they're going from Jefferson to Randolph, who, if memory serves, was pretty was a pretty talented legal mind to mm -hmm. John Marshall, who we know is 
pretty epic when it comes to understanding the United States constitutional law. So Absolutely. I feel like the yeah, the clients didn't suffer. <laughs> I, I think they'd be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and, and I mentioned the help that he got from his father and father-in-law. So Thomas Marshall gave his son some land in Fauquier County, while Jacqueline Amber gave Marshall a half-acre lot in a neighborhood in Richmond where numerous other state officials resided. It was on this lot that Marshall built, quote, a handsome two-story federal-style brick house, which is still there to this day and is known as the John Marshall House. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Now, Marshall would run his legal practice out of the house before he finally built a separate brick office behind the house. So this gives him an opportunity to still be close to his family, to still make sure they're being taken care of, while at the same time working on his legal career. The House would also allow Marshall to entertain other prominent Richmond attorneys, as well as leading politicians, as it had, quote, an exceptionally large dining room that could accommodate as many as 30 guests. Wow. Now, we should note that in establishing this household, Marshall used enslaved labor to manage the household's operations. According to Paul, quote, Marshall owned between seven and 16 household slaves at any time, which was slightly more than the average household in Richmond had. Though both of the biographies that I used for research acknowledge that Marshall did express a, quote, abhorrence for slavery in general, we do need to make note of that he made no moves to free those that he enslaved during his lifetime. And as Paul notes, quote, He did enjoy the comforts that his household slaves provided to him. Marshall's attitude toward African Americans was paternalistic. There is no evidence that he used physical violence against those he enslaved or that he separated families. But we should note, you know, he was a slave owner and he really didn't make any moves to to free these people that he enslaved. And so once we get to that round at the end where we're discussing his legacy, that is one thing that we will have to take into consideration. And didn't he have, he had an issue with the institution in and of itself, but like he never acted upon that. If I remember correctly from my reading of him, correct? Exactly. He did. And and we'll talk a bit more during his time as chief justice. He did get involved in the American colonization society and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. But no, he kind of saw it as a part of life, and it was a part of his life that he felt. I didn't create it, so I'm, exactly. you know, I don't like it, but I didn't create it, and I need to survive. It's convenient unquote. for me. It's convenient <laughs> for my family, so here we yeah. go. Yeah. So Marshall would also become more involved with various social clubs in Richmond, which helped him to establish more connections and continued his advancement both professionally and politically. But before he could really advance too far in his career, Marshall and his contemporaries had to figure out what to do about the state of affairs in the United States. So again, it was becoming pretty clear to a number of leading Americans at the time that the weak national government that had been established under the Articles of Confederation could not meet the economic challenges facing the nation. This was only made even clearer with Shays' Rebellion in the fall of 1786. So you've got domestic uprisings, you've got an economic crisis, and you've got this government that just can't seem to do anything. And Marshall was 
always kind of a big proponent of of that strong central government. So again, being influenced by his military service, being influenced by his time in, in Virginia politics and kind of seeing the inadequacies and ineffectiveness of this kind of confederation, it doesn't surprise me that he was gung-ho about, all right, we need to change this. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you start to have other actors on the scene you've got james madison you've got alexander hamilton they go to the constitutional convention which folks didn't know at the time that the constitution was going to come out of it but it did and and now it is the constitutional convention now marshall wasn't a member of that convention but he was very much in favor of the plan that came out of philadelphia in 1787 as we can see you know that's that's a trend throughout his life so it's not surprising And he would have the opportunity to contribute to the Constitution's ratification in 1788 when he was elected to the Virginia Ratification Convention. Now, this convention was set to begin on June 2nd, 1788, and it was just by the skin of his teeth that Marshall actually got to participate in this convention. He won election over an anti-federalist candidate by just 11 votes. Oh, wow. So if a few votes had gone the other way, John Marshall would not have been at this convention. And this is important because, as we talked about in the second pre-presidency episode for the Madison series, there really weren't, even though there were 170 total delegates, only 20 people actually spoke, actually delivered speeches at this convention. John Marshall was one of them. Now, he wasn't necessarily the leader for the Federalist cause at the convention. That was really James Madison. And meanwhile, you had Patrick Henry, who was really seen as the lead for the anti-Federalist cause. And you see here some rifts forming. We've talked about James Monroe keeps on coming up as being a friend with John Marshall. He was also friends with James Madison. But even though he had these friendships with Marshall and Madison, Monroe ultimately went to the anti-federalist side. Meanwhile, you've got Edmund Randolph, who leaned a bit anti-federalist and then came back (laughs) to the federalist cause for the convention. So, you know, you've got some shifts going on here. But Marshall was very much firmly on the federalist side. And he would lend his voice to the defense of the Constitution. You know, Madison took up the bulk of the defense, but Marshall would participate in this. And ultimately, by a vote of 89 for to 79 against, so 10 votes, the Constitution was ratified by the state convention and Virginia joined the Union. This new Constitution created a new government, a new federal bureaucracy, and this offered a plethora of new offices for Marshall to seek. Friends of his attempted to convince him to run for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, while the new president, George Washington, nominated him as the U.S. District Attorney for Virginia. To these offers, however, Marshall offered his apologies and declined. (laughs) And it kind of makes sense because, you know, Polly was still suffering from ill health. The family was continuing to grow, and so John felt it best to remain in Richmond. And he continued to build his law practice in his office just behind the house, rather than being drawn away to these distant cities and towns. He declines multiple appointments, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They're they're coming up rather quickly now. (laughs) 
He's playing hard to get too. <laughs> exactly. You know, he, he learned from Polly. He learned this, this game of playing hard to get. But Marshall did find himself drafted to serve again in the Virginia House of Delegates, despite the fact that he actually went to the election. And, and back in those days, you, you gathered on election day to cast your ballot. He actually went there to support a friend. And he wanted his friend to get the seat, and he ended up getting it. <laughs> so, Oops. <laughs> a bit awkward. Uh, I swear it wasn't me. <laughs> look, look, my ballot. It's for you. It's for you. I promise. <laughs> now, after patching things up with his friend, Marshall did agree to serve, and so he assumed a seat in the legislature. And so, of course, that was in Richmond, so still close to home. He was still able to be there for his family, but still advancing politically. Though he still didn't want to really go any further than that at this point, he did get an opportunity to gain some firsthand exposure to this new government because he served as counsel in a case that involved pre-revolutionary war debts, and this case ultimately ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court. In February 1796, Marshall made the trip up to Philadelphia, which was then the nation's capital, and appeared before the highest federal court for the only time he appeared in front of the bench of the Supreme Court. Now, we'll we'll talk in a few minutes. He ends up taking another seat at the high court. <laughs> just just a minor seat, just a minor role. He was really not important. That is really not no. the shining star part of his career at all. At all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> but he actually did appear, at least in this one case, before the Supreme Court as legal counsel. Now, there are a few cases of note from the early days of the Supreme Court, but this case, Ware v. Hylton, was one of the more important in that the ruling, which was actually against Marshall's client, so Marshall lost this case, the ruling established, quote, that the United States could not shirk its obligations to Britain. The private debt owed to British and Scottish exporters would have to be paid. This would also end up being only one of two Supreme Court cases where Marshall found himself on the losing side. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. So his one case that he was legal counsel, and then he's got another case, and he ends up in the court in another capacity that he's on the losing (laughs) end. But we'll get to that. Now, as you mentioned, Alicia, he had more opportunities that came up to actually joined the federal administration because President Washington invited him to serve as Attorney General in August 1795. Marshall declined, and he cited an important case that he was working on as the reason he couldn't serve at this point. Washington again considered Marshall when he was trying to find a replacement for Marshall's friend and colleague Edmund Randolph as Secretary of State later in the year. But this one, Washington ultimately decided not even to ask Marshall. He was like... (laughs) He's like, well, he declined attorney general. Is he really going to accept secretary of state? Probably not. (laughs) But he did enlist Marshall to put forward the offer of the State Department post to Patrick Henry. But as Marshall expected, Henry declined the role. And ultimately, Washington was forced to appoint his secretary of war, Timothy Pickering, as secretary of state. And Washington's successor as president would live to regret this decision by Washington. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. So at this point, Marshall was still in the Virginia House of Delegates, and this allowed him an opportunity to support the Washington administration in Richmond 
because he organized a public meeting there in late April 1796 to support the Jay Treaty, which the administration's special envoy, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay, had negotiated with Great Britain. This show of support would lead President Washington to offer Marshall yet another position, this time U.S. Minister to France. Marshall, of course, declined, and he continued to use that legal case. It's like, I've got too much going on here. You know, this case is really important. I really can't. Sorry. Despite this, as noted by Paul, quote, Marshall's political influence as the Federalist leader in Virginia and his reputation as one of the leading attorneys in Virginia were both peaking at the same moment. It was in part because of this that Marshall was finally offered a position that he accepted. <laughs> Sixth time's the charm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some point, he's got to get tired of saying no. Or yeah. we're just going to catch him on that right day. Something, it's got to happen. It's got to happen. So March 1797, John Adams became president, succeeded George Washington. And the incoming chief executive was immediately faced with a diplomatic crisis with France. Marshall had been offered the post as U.S. Minister to France. He had declined. Washington then offered the position to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina. And Pinckney actually accepted. He traveled to France, but he found upon his arrival that the French government refused to recognize him as the official representative of the U.S. in Paris. This was due both to the increasing tensions that were related to the Jay Treaty, which, of course, France saw as being more favorable to Britain to their detriment. And they were like, guys, we helped you to get your independence from those guys, Britain, and now you're cozying up to them? Really? We had an agreement, guys. What happened? We hadn't. Uh, we thought we were good. What's the problem? <laughs> They also really weren't happy about how the previous U.S. minister to France, James Monroe, he keeps coming up again and again. (laughs) So James Monroe had actually been very well received by the French government. They saw him as being somebody that they could work with. He was really pro-French. And the Washington administration hadn't really liked that. They felt he was a little too cozy with the French. So they removed him from the post. And the French government was upset about that because you're now you're sending this Pinckney guy who really isn't too keen on the French. It, it seems like he's <laughs> seems like he's really favorable to the British. Maybe you should have sent him to London. But regardless, this move continued to ratchet up the tension between the two nations, and so President Adams had to decide how to respond. He opted at this point to name a three-person commission to travel to France to hopefully resolve the crisis. And so since Pinckney was already there, he went ahead and nominated him, as well as Elbridge Gary, who was a trusted friend and associate from Massachusetts. And for the third member, you guessed it, John Marshall, (laughs) Virginia. And it's interesting because for a couple of reasons. So first of all, John Adams really didn't know John Marshall at this point. So it seems like he was probably recommended by other leading Federalists, possibly even by Washington himself, you know. Washington may have left a note on the desk as he was leaving, you know, in case you need somebody for a position, try asking Marshall again. Maybe you'll get asking him for 10 years at this point. (laughs) Maybe you'll have better luck. Also, you know, why, why did Marshall agree to this? So 
what's interesting because Paul postulates and and he he asks this question, you know, why did Marshall accept this one? And especially, you know, this would mean travel to France. This would be taking him well away from his family for months at a time. But Paul reasoned that Marshall, quote, cared about the outcomes of the negotiations, and he was also familiar with the underlying issues. While it pained him to leave his family and his practice, Marshall assumed that the mission would be a matter of only a few months, and he assumed that he could hold on to his clients during that time. So, you know, this was this provided Marshall an opportunity to finally say yes and, and to demonstrate that he wanted to advance politically, but it wasn't too much of an investment of his time and wasn't going to take too much away from the energy towards his legal practice. So that's why Paul thought that Marshall probably accepted this one. And it, it, that makes makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just because if you were the minister, right, you were there for a number of years until you were recalled. So that was kind of in perpetuity, which would definitely alter his entire life. And it wasn't common for them to travel with their family and being as committed to his family as he was. It's much easier to sail away for two to three months versus, you know, two to three, maybe even four years uh, being overseas and apart from your family. So I I agree. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And so this, this new commission that President Adams put together, so Pinckney and Marshall were both Federalists. Gary was a Democratic Republican. And this was actually a point of contention between President Adams, who pushed for Gary's inclusion, and other Federalist leaders who didn't really think too much about this whole bipartisanism that <laughs> Adams was trying to push. Like, you know, he's not one of us. We we really need another <laughs> Federalist. And Adams is like, look, guys, let's just try and work across the aisle just this one time. But the Senate did confirm the three commissioners. But what's interesting, we see John Adams doing this again and again. He actually sent the names of the commissioners to the Senate for confirmation, and the Senate confirmed them before Marshall had even heard this news and had decided (laughs) whether he was accepting or not. (laughs) Thankfully for Adams, Marshall did decide to accept this, and so he would travel to Europe. The commissioners would join Pinckney in Europe. But this commission had little luck in achieving anything worthwhile, as before the negotiations could even begin, they were approached by agents of the French foreign minister, our old friend Talleyrand, who insisted that they, quote, must pay a great deal of money, a 50,000 pound bribe to be exact, (laughs) in order for negotiations to begin. Now, in European diplomacy of the time, this wasn't necessarily unheard of. It was just seen as being part of the practice. You grease the wheels in order to have those conversations. Cost of doing business. The cost of doing business. But the American diplomats just saw it as an insult. However, the commission found themselves at odds over what their response should be. Pinckney and Marshall insisted, you know, no, We just need to cut off negotiations. This is a non-starter. Let's just go home. Now, the more Francophile-inclined commissioner, Gary, thought that they should continue to try to engage the French government in informal negotiations. He's like, well, we're here. No, we can't meet with them formally unless they accept us, but maybe we can do something behind the scenes. Maybe we can try and talk with some folks, try and see what inroads we can make. Now, Gary's fear was all-out war. 
But Marshall and Pinckney felt that if they didn't take a strong stand, it would indicate that the U.S. was weak and would bow in the face of pressure. Thus, the two Federalist commissioners left France in April 1798 and headed back to America, while Gary continued on for a few more months. Ultimately, it was a futile attempt at diplomacy for Gary. Mm-hmm. Now, though this first mission as a diplomat was rather a failure through no fault of his own, Marshall received praise for his response in what would come to be known as the XYZ Affair when, months later, pro-French Democratic Republicans unwittingly pushed for the release of reports which detailed all of this and damaged that faction's reputation. They thought for sure that the reports that the commission sent back were going to say something about, oh, well, they sabotaged it, they did all Mm -hmm. this, it was because they were pro-British, and then come to find out, no, they cut off negotiations because they were asked for a bribe, a very large bribe. It has the XYZ affair has to be like one of my most favorite egg on face political <laughs> mistakes ever. I just love the fact that John Adams, I know he was ornery. I know that he made a lot of missteps, but he tried to warn them. He's like, trust me, you don't want to know what this says. And they just were so dedicated to like trying to nail him to the ground. And it's just, I giggle every time I read about it. Every time I think about it, I'm like, (laughs) that's what you get. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, you, you have all this going on and you have, Federalists kind of in an ascendancy here. You know, the, the Federalists are really starting to become more popular. And for Marshall, this was important. You know, this this was a good time for him. But he really wasn't, and again, this is John Marshall at this point. You know, he, he was like, well, I'll just go back to the law practice in Richmond. Not really too ambitious at this point. But 1798 would prove to be a year with more changes in store for him. So, first of all, his father-in-law, Jacqueline Amber, died in 1798, though I haven't been able to confirm exactly when he passed away, if it was still while Marshall was in Europe or if Mm. he was back, but at some point in that year, he passed away. Now, in the fall of 1798, Marshall was convinced by former President George Washington to challenge the incumbent Democratic-Republican U.S. Representative John Clopton for his seat in Marshall's district, which was the Virginia 13th Congressional District. Though the attacks against Marshall would be fierce, he would find an unexpected champion in the form of Patrick Henry. So, you know, Marshall and Henry had been on opposite sides in the ratification convention, and really, Patrick Henry had been a strong and vocal anti-federalist. You know, everything that John Marshall was for, he was against. Right. Now, despite this, Henry asserted publicly, quote, that Marshall ever stood high in my esteem as a private citizen. His temper and disposition were always pleasant, his talents and integrity unquestioned, which Henry added were sufficient to place that gentleman far above any competitor in the district for Congress. So that's high praise coming from somebody who was a political enemy. Oh, yeah. And when the election was held on April 24, 1799, Marshall ended up winning by 114 votes. So pretty narrow, but still. Yeah. yeah. And this was a wave of Federalist wins in Virginia in that election cycle. 
as that faction doubled the number of seats that they held in the state's congressional delegation just from this election cycle. Now, during the campaign, an opportunity for another office came his way as President Adams offered to nominate him as an Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Marshall would ultimately decline the offer, and Paul notes that, quote, he, i.e. Marshall, had no interest in the Supreme Court. (laughs) Okay, but to be fair, I feel like that has to do with how the Supreme Court was prior to his decision to maybe join it and shake things up a bit. So I can understand, again, being (laughs) pro-national, strong federal government right now. Like the Supreme Court wasn't really that co-equal branch. So it doesn't surprise me. And we'll talk more about his motivations for possibly (laughs) changing his opinion of the court before too long. <laughs> but I read that and I was like, famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> so immediately after this election, as it would be months before his term in Congress began, Marshall traveled to Kentucky to visit with his father, whose health was not well. So he kind of he felt that he needed to take this trip. It may be the last time that he saw his father, so you know, it was it was an important trip for him to take. When he returned to Virginia, Marshall argued cases before various courts as he tried to get his law business in order before making his way north. In late November 1799, John and Polly Marshall traveled to Philadelphia, and in early December, he assumed a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Polly at the time was six months pregnant, but she bore the difficulties of travel in her condition in order to be with her husband, who she had missed during his travel to Europe. So that separation was really difficult for her, and I mean, you could imagine, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who's going through so much and their partner who they seem to really have a strong bond with is gone. She didn't want to go through that again. So she's like, I'll deal with it. Let's go to Philadelphia. And she would ultimately give birth to this child who was James Keith Marshall in Philadelphia on February 13th, 1800. John, meanwhile, settled into his new role in the house. He quickly found himself positioned as the leader of the moderate Federalist. And this really came about as the Congress was organizing itself because Federalist representatives found themselves in a stalemate. So some of them were supporting John Rutledge of South Carolina, while others were supporting Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts for election as Speaker of the House. And so Marshall worked as a conduit in working out a resolution to this. And like President Adams, he was much more willing than other Federalist colleagues to work across the aisle. As noted by Smith, quote, one of Marshall's most rewarding friendships was with Albert Gallatin, the Republican leader in the House. Now, despite being a new member, it was Marshall to whom the House turned to deliver a eulogy in honor of the late former President George Washington upon his passing. Marshall's eulogy gave us what is now the famous refrain, which has been used in pretty much every Washington biography since, quote, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. That came from John Marshall. I am not surprised at all. In addition to helping to find common ground between Federalists and Democratic Republicans, Marshall also came to the defense of the Adams administration when a motion was made to censure the president for the extradition of a British seaman who was charged with mutiny and murder and who ended up in the U.S. 
After Marshall's speech on March 7th outlining the legal ins and outs of the case, which concluded that the administration was justified legally in the extradition, the House, by a vote of 61 to 35, defeated the censure motion, with even six Democratic Republicans joining the Federalists and voting against censure. So, again, he is just able to coalesce and his charisma and his team building, and he's just able to really articulate and get people over to his side. Uh, it just it, it just keeps building. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially at this time when partisan politics were so divisive, the fact that he was able to, to bridge that gap, I mean, that's really rare at this time. Well, and especially at this point, right, the the other opposing faction is really starting to get its its feet wet, right? And they're going to knock Adams out of the presidency here shortly. So it's amazing that he was able to kind of convince them to agree with him. Absolutely. And due to Marshall's loyalty to the administration in this brief tenure in Congress, when Adams decided and we've talked about this in other episodes of the special series, he chose to inherit Washington's cabinet, but that was not really (laughs) a great move. They were working against him. And finally, in 1800, Adams decided, I've had enough with these folks. I'm getting rid of some of them. He naturally had Marshall in mind to bring into the administration. In early May, after Jameson Henry submitted his resignation, Adams put forward Marshall's name to the Senate to succeed McHenry as Secretary of War. Now, Representative Marshall wrote to the President the next day on May 8th, asking him to withdraw the nomination and asserting that, quote, no man is more intimately persuaded than myself of the wisdom of that political system which has been adopted by the government of my country, nor of the unvarying patriotism with which it has been pursued. It is therefore with particular regret, I assure you, that my private affairs claim an immediate attention incompatible with public office and oblige me to decline the honorable station you would have assigned me. And so from what we've learned of Marshall thus far, we can really kind of understand, you know, the congressional term was only for a few months, then he'd be able to go back to Richmond, be able to keep up his legal practice versus being a cabinet member that basically you're on most of the year, even when Congress isn't in session. So you can kind of understand why Marshall would say, okay, well, I'm okay with being in the House, but not Secretary of War. Despite this request from the person he had nominated, (laughs) Adams simply refused to withdraw Marshall's name. (laughs) And thus, on May 9th, the Senate confirmed John Marshall as Secretary of War. (laughs) Marshall, however, thinking, I just sent this nice letter. Adams is going to remove my name. I don't have anything to worry about. He had left Philadelphia for Richmond to do what he could to revive his struggling law practice. Even though Marshall thought that he was going to be able to balance this legal practice with his time in Congress, some of his clients had started taking their business elsewhere because they couldn't rely on Marshall to be present to take their cases to court. They're like, you know... Well, it's it's fine and dandy that you think I can wait until June for this, but <laughs> I really want to move forward on this. Luckily for Marshall, since he was not on hand to immediately take control of the War Department, when Adams fired Timothy Pickering as Secretary of State on May 12th, 
the president decided that the War Department might not be the right place for Marshall after all. And instead, he sent in Samuel Dexter's name for confirmation to that post, while he put Marshall's name up for nomination for another post, Secretary of State. Marshall was confirmed for this new post unanimously on May 13th, and Dexter was confirmed as Secretary of War. Now, you can imagine Marshall's surprise when this commission arrived (laughs) from Attorney General Charles Lee saying, congratulations, you're now Secretary of State. I think I just... Hold on, that wasn't even the office that he was putting me up for, was it? <laughs> and I told switch. him no. I told him no. Well, <laughs> technically, you only said no to Secretary of War. Secretary of State is a completely different thing. It's a different office. I know you didn't want the War Department, but this is the State Department. Okay. <laughs> now, as noted by Smith, quote, Marshall now had a serious decision to make. He was committed to the president but his family obligations were compelling. Perhaps the most serious problem was Polly's reluctance to leave home. Six months in Philadelphia had convinced her she did not want to leave Richmond again. On the other hand, the salary of the Secretary of State would be sufficient to support Marshall's comfortable lifestyle. Ultimately, Marshall would agree to the appointment, and after clearing up some personal business in Richmond, he rode a stagecoach with Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Chase who was a fellow passenger on the stagecoach, they rode to Washington, D.C. in early June. So now we get to a possible reason why he may have accepted Secretary of State, because the Capitol was moving. They weren't going to have to go back to Philadelphia. They were just going to have to go across the Potomac from Virginia to Washington, D.C. And so John Marshall assumed office as the fourth Secretary of State on June 13, 1800, in Washington, D.C. Upon his arrival in town, he would stay in the Washington City Hotel, described as, quote, a three-story brick building that had recently opened. Ironically enough, this hotel was on what would become the site of the Supreme Court building far in the future. (laughs) Fellow lodgers at the hotel that June were President Adams and the new Secretary of War, Samuel Dexter. Adams and his new cabinet members would work together for a week before the president departed to return home to Quincy for the rest of the summer. Adams's departure meant that, on the ground at least, Secretary of State Marshall was now in charge of government operations, as well as continuing to work to lead the factions of the Federalist Party to a reconciliation before upcoming elections. Marshall also found that he had some diplomatic business with which to contend. Surprise, surprise for the Secretary of State. (laughs) (laughs) Marshall, upon assuming office, found a letter from U.S. Minister to Britain, Rufus King, about an impasse in the proceedings of a joint arbitration commission, which was established as a part of Jay's Treaty, and this was delaying the processing of claims of British creditors against Americans. So that was part of the treaty that they would put together this commission in order to settle those claims, to evaluate and pay out as needed. King warned that if matters were not moved along, the British government was starting to, quote, threaten to continue its attacks on U.S. ships and its occupation of forts along the Canadian border. The new secretary instructed King to work with the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Grenville, quote, to amend the commission's procedures and appoint a new commission in order to end the deadlock. Both Adams and Marshall realized that, with tensions still running high with France, which we'll discuss shortly, They needed to keep the situation with the British from escalating. They didn't need to be fighting both at the same time. (laughs) 
The two ultimately agreed to authorize King to negotiate a lump sum payment with the British government rather than processing every individual claim through the commission as this would expedite the process. So basically, we will give you this amount of money. You can deal with who you want to give it to. We're not going to process these one at a time. Though it would take 18 months and Adams had felt, quote, that the British would settle for something less than £1 million sterling, roughly $100 million today, the final agreement was for a, quote, payment of £600,000 sterling, which is about $75 million today. So they actually got off with paying less, and it was done. One less issue to deal with. But there was another issue, which will come up in future presidencies, about British ships impressing American sailors. Mm-hmm. Now, the official British policy was one of, quote-unquote, indefeasible allegiance which meant that once someone was British, they were always British. And though they didn't state it overtly with this policy, it wasn't hard to connect the dotted line that this meant that they didn't respect the naturalization of American citizens. So you may say you're American, you were British before, you're British now. And the fact of the matter was that the British desperately needed sailors, while the American Navy and the American merchant shipping were both turning a blind eye and doing everything they could indirectly to encourage experienced British sailors to desert the British service and sign up to serve on an American ship. So this was still a point, you know, Britain was at war with France. They needed every sailor that they could get. And meanwhile, the Americans were like, "Mm, you know, that British service really isn't all it's cut out to be why don't you come here? We'll pay you a little more money. We'll treat you better. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Just, <laughs> just you know, sneak off once you're in port. Come talk to us. <laughs> so they really weren't able to achieve any headway on that, being able to, to resolve that issue. But by and large, things start settling down with the British. They were able to at least keep things on simmer for the time being. And with that situation more stable, Adams and Marshall could then focus on the situation with the French. Now, by the point Marshall assumed office, the U.S. and France had been in a state of undeclared naval war for nearly two years. This is what's dubbed the Quasi-War. Though high Federalists, or arch-Federalists as they're called, continued to push for a declared war against France. So you had these these ultra-Federalists who were like, we just need to go ahead and say it, we're at war. Adams and his supporters, including Marshall, had favored another attempt at diplomacy, and thus a second peace commission had been sent to France. This commission was made up of Supreme Court Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, William Vance Murray, and William R. Davey. This commission had been working since March 1800 to secure an agreement with France to settle the disputes between the two nations, but by the time Marshall assumed control of the State Department, there was still no news. Their first report, which was written on May 17th, didn't arrive in Marshall's hands until late August, and Marshall quickly reported back to Adams that, quote, We ought not to be surprised if we see our envoys in the course of the next month without a treaty. So it what really wasn't looking good. What news they were getting, it really wasn't looking good that we were actually going to be able to resolve anything. Now, Marshall had little role in this actual second round of negotiations because the instructions, the commission had already gotten underway well before he took office. 
But back in the U.S., he was actually able to work behind the scenes politically to give the Federalists who were pushing for war, he kept them at bay. He was like, you know, guys, let's just, let's cool it for a moment. Let's see what happens. We still don't know. And this gave the commission more time to attempt to find a diplomatic resolution. So even though Marshall was pessimistic about the chances, he still wanted to give them as much opportunity as he could politically to be able to do that. Well, they still were struggling with developing their own military and again, going against, you know, France is probably France or Britain at this point is kind of a a very big gamble. So uh, I think it's one of the more underappreciated moments of Adams's career and, and Marshall's hand in kind of really exercising that diplomacy and making sure that they secured a nonviolent solution to, to a political problem. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's great at the time to say, oh, well, we've got all these militias. That's all we really need. No, no, nope. no. <laughs> did you learn nothing from the American Revolution, people? <laughs> <laughs> no, because then we did it in the War of 1812. And <laughs> it takes us a few times to learn our lessons around these parts. Exactly. <laughs> but Marshall had already learned the lesson. It was like, no, we really don't need to do this. So. But even though he he had kind of this role back at home trying to give them cover, he was more active in diplomatic relations with Spain. And in his relations with Spain, he applied kind of a carrot and stick approach. Now, the first issue that he was faced with was regarding a, the seizure of a French privateer in a port in Santo Domingo, which was at one time the Spanish-controlled part of the island of Hispaniola, which is now the Dominican Republic. As we discussed in the narrative series, though, this part of Hispaniola had been transferred over to French control. But the Spanish protested that when the ship had been taken, the port was still under Spanish control. And so they were like, you're not in an undeclared naval war with us. You're in an undeclared naval war with France. Even though that was a French privateer, you were in our port. You can't do that. Marshall, without consulting with Adams, conceded the point and ordered the ship's release. So Marshall looked at the situation. And he's like, you know what? It's really not worth it to fight. Mm-hmm. Take the ship. Go ahead. He also intervened on Spain's behalf in the matter of an American adventurer who was actively working to encourage Muskogee folks in Florida to rebel against Spanish authority. So here you got, and we'll see this time and again as we go through the narrative series, these Americans going, trying to stir up rebellions in other colonies. And so Marshall's like, you know what? You're right. He really doesn't need to be doing this. I'm going to act and we're going to stop him. If the Spanish thought that Marshall was going to be a pushover, though, he instructed the U.S. minister to Spain, David Humphreys, to take a hard line on the matter of Spanish ships taking American vessels as prisoners of war during the Quasi-War. And he argued that this action violated international law and that, if need be, the U.S. would seek retaliation through those nearby Spanish colonies of Florida and Louisiana. So he was like, okay, well, I'll concede the point. You know, yeah, that was your port. Yeah, we don't need Americans going and causing trouble in your colonies. But you also don't need to be taking our ships because, to your point, we're not in undeclared naval war with you. Right. But if you don't see things our way, maybe these colonies need to become American. Yep. 
As Paul wrote, quote, Marshall's tough stance towards Spain, combined with the success of the peace mission in Paris, more on that in a minute, ultimately resolved both crises without resort to war. So before we get to the peace resolution with France, one other diplomatic item which occupied a good portion of Marshall's time in terms of his thinking about, but one that there was really little room for him to act directly, was with the Barbary states, which were semi-autonomous states along the coast of North Africa. They were nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, but they really acted more as independent nations. Now, the Barbary states sanctioned piracy against Mediterranean shipping, unless, of course, the nation under whose flag the merchants were flying had paid them a bribe. These bribes could get pretty costly, but for most European nations, again, it was the price of doing business. We'll give you a bribe. It's fine. Just don't mess with our ships. Americans, however, are, of course, of a different breed. (laughs) Initially, They had resisted playing these games, but as the attacks increased on American merchant ships, who were increasingly interested in participating in this Mediterranean trade, it was a lucrative trade, they wanted to get a part of it, diplomatic agents of the Washington administration negotiated treaties one by one with the Barbary powers, which did include provisions for paying tributes to each of the Barbary regimes. As other nations found after reaching an agreement with the Barbary states, This didn't necessarily end the piracy in the Mediterranean. (laughs) And indeed, by the time Marshall assumed office, attacks on American shipping were on the increase. Shortly after taking office, Marshall received a report from the U.S. minister to Prussia, the guy who you mentioned earlier, John Quincy Adams. This report informed the administration of an offer from the Swedish for putting together, quote, a joint naval force in the Mediterranean for the neutral states of Denmark, Sweden, and the United States. The force would police the sea to protect commerce from the Barbary Corsairs. Despite Minister Adams' strong support for this plan, Marshall felt that it was more prudent to adhere to the policies of Presidents Washington and Adams and negotiate new tribute payments, as he felt a naval force would cost the nation more in the long run. Now, while this may sound like hypocrisy coming from the peace commissioner who walked out of negotiations over an (laughs) attempt at extortion, it also reflects more of a sense of pragmatism. And indeed, Marshall would ultimately be proven right because the Jefferson administration would pursue naval action against Tripoli, and it would end up being more than the tributes that they were paying. It would ultimately cost the nation more to pursue this naval action. But Marshall, at this point, was able to say, you know, let's just cool it. Let's keep on paying the tributes. Let's just move forward as we are. Yeah, he had such a well-rounded, like, global perspective. It's it's amazing listening throughout his the different steps in his career, right, that he always was able to kind of take that step back and say, okay, well, in the moment, yes, we might want to – get into a conflict with Britain or get into a conflict with France because they are impinging on our honor. What does that mean? Five months, five years down the road, we don't really have the resources with which to do this. And wouldn't it be better to try to exhaust all of our options? Um, So yeah, just so pragmatic. And so, and again, just, you know, very, his, his charisma, his ability to, to, um, build those relationships is again, just keeps coming back and really working out for 
the evolving government of the of the country. And that's the thing. You really get a sense that Marshall has, you know, a firm foundation of beliefs, but mm-hmm. he also realizes the importance of compromising and sometimes we're just not in the place where we can do this right now. So let's right. figure out what we can do at the time and then think on down the line. Okay, well, maybe we make a different decision later in a different circumstance, but right now things are as they are and here's the best option. Right. And Marshall would have to try and put these, these talents of his to practice because 1800 was an election year. And it was increasingly clear that the split in the Federalist ranks between supporters of President Adams and the High Federalists threatened to open the door to Thomas Jefferson becoming president. And so Marshall was going to be this key contact trying to keep affairs in the government going and trying to do anything he could to bridge this political gap because he realized, you know, this guys, look what's coming. Mm-hmm. we've got to pull ourselves together. You may not like Adams, but do you like Jefferson more? Really? Yeah. Trying that pragmatic approach. I feel like this was probably one of the only times in his career that he wasn't able to sway enough people to say, listen to what I'm saying. I I understand that Adams is not a perfect candidate. However, you have to look at the other side. And I know that there was... There was a lot of fear related to a Jefferson presidency and what that would mean for the country and the republic. Everybody felt like, you know, the country would be coming to an end. It's on the precipice. And so it's it's interesting that this was the one time, perhaps, uh, that he just wasn't able to, to finagle enough support for Adams. Exactly. Well, and the year just kept moving along and the new congressional session was going to start in November. And slowly but surely, these government officials start trickling into Washington City, which at the time was hardly what anybody would call a city, but... (laughs) More of a swamp with some outposts. (laughs) Surprise! It's the nation's capital now. (laughs) And so as this was going on, and as you had more of this looming threat of a Jefferson presidency, News arrived from France that the Convention of Mortfontaine had been signed on October 3rd, 1800. Now, due to the slow nature of communication at the time, it wouldn't be until early November that the first rumors of the agreement arrived in Baltimore. On November 18th, Secretary Marshall wrote to his friend St. George Tucker that, quote, I believe confidently that an accommodation has taken place with France, though we have as yet no official account of it. And so, the Convention of Mort Fontaine, and we'll we'll talk a, a little bit more about it in a second, but this was a major achievement for the Adams administration. This meant peace with France, the end of the quasi-war. Major victory. But was it going to be enough? <laughs> was it going to be enough? And, oh, by the way, the presidential election is happening now. <laughs> yeah. Though scheduled to begin on November 17th, due to poor weather and even worse roads, Many congressional members were delayed in getting to D.C., and thus Congress did not achieve a quorum until the 21st. And Marshall, of course, had been charged by President Adams to draft that year's annual address to Congress, which Adams delivered on the 22nd. As described by Smith, quote, 
The message was moderate in tone, a valedictory befitting a successful administration. Revenues were up, commerce was flourishing, negotiations with Britain were underway, and a friendship treaty with Prussia had just been concluded. But there was still no official word from Paris, but the outlook was positive. It wouldn't be until two weeks later that Peace Commissioner William R. Davey brought official word of the Convention of Mortfontaine to Washington. Unfortunately for President Adams, Davey's arrival was around the same time that Marshall learned from Charles Coatsworth Pinckney that the electors in South Carolina had gone for Jefferson and Burr, which made Adams's loss in the election official. So we don't really need to concern ourselves with the mess that was the tie electoral count between Jefferson and Burr. <laughs> that was a mess enough. But as Adams and Marshall both saw it, there was still work to be done, even though it was clear that Adams was not going to get a second term. And the Convention of Mortfontaine was one of the big pieces of this. They had to get this peace treaty through the Senate. Unfortunately for them, the Senate was dominated by the High Federalists, and they really didn't want this peace treaty. They didn't want the commission to go to begin with. Right. So in the initial vote on January 23rd, 1801, the Senate rejected the treaty by a vote of 14 for to 16 against, with all the negative votes being cast by Federalists. So they really, and, and this is something that the Federalists are criticized for by historians nowadays, they really didn't take into account public opinion. Mm-hmm. And the public did not want war with France. Right. More importantly, the business community who Federalists depended on for their support did not want war with France. And so... Miraculously, when Adams resubmitted the treaty on February 3rd, five Federalists switched sides, which led the treaty to be ratified by a vote of 22 to 9. Arguably, though, this was not the most important vote held in this lame duck session of Congress. So, to this point in the nation's history, and Alicia, you had alluded to this earlier, there had been three chief justices of the Supreme Court, John Jay, John Rutledge, and Oliver Ellsworth. Though there had been a good amount of adjustment to the new system of constitutional government and the other branches of the government also had a bit of a slow start, the federal judiciary really had an even more delayed process of kicking into full steam. And case in point, prior to 1801, the Supreme Court had only issued 63 decisions in just over a decade. And few of those decisions had a major impact on legal precedent. As another, yeah, ref- oh, go ahead. Which is, I yeah, which is, I think, just so amazing considering, right? The the nation in and of itself is is trying to develop and trying to figure out its pathway and trying to figure out how it's going to move together as a republic instead of this confederation of states. And it just it's always been something that's kind of shocked me that more, they didn't oversee more cases, but again, I think it was, it was the tone and the tenor of what the Supreme court was before John Marshall came onto the scene. It, it just didn't have that gravitas that he made sure, well, spoiler alert that he made sure <laughs> it held uh, for future generations. So uh, the 63 decisions is always something that I find utterly fascinating. And also that, and, and I mentioned this, and I made a point of mentioning this as we were talking, 
two of those three chief justices were sent on diplomatic missions <laughs> to Europe for months at a time. Mm-hmm. If you need any more indication that there was little for the court to do, that was it. Yep. So you you could be without a chief justice for a long time. Nobody really cared. Nobody really <laughs> noticed. So with this, you know, Chief Justice Ellsworth was on the second commission to France. And before he returned to the U.S., he started suffering from ill health. And due to that, he went ahead and submitted his resignation from the court to President Adams. Now, it arrived around the same time that the Senate was considering the convention of Mort Fontaine, and so Adams had a choice to make. As was Adams's style, on December 18, 1800, he initially submitted the name of the first Chief Justice, John Jay, to the Senate for confirmation without actually consulting with Jay. So <laughs> Jay at this time was wrapping up a term as governor of New York, but here you've got Adams, hey, you know, you were chief justice before. He'll be okay with being chief justice again. It's fine. Marshall wrote to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney on the day that Adams submitted Jay's name to the Senate that he felt that Adams's second choice, should Jay decline, was Associate Justice William Cushing. As for himself, Marshall wrote, quote, I shall return to Richmond on the 3rd of March, 1801, to recommence practice as a lawyer. If my present wish can succeed, so far as respects myself, I shall never again fill any political station, whatever. <laughs> Jay, however, when he learned of this appointment, he was like, no, I really, I'm ready for retirement. I don't want to go back to the court again. Been there, done that. It's not that great of an appointment. I'm good. Thanks, exactly. though. <laughs> I, I think, I think. I'll say thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) And ultimately, despite what Marshall thought, it would not be Justice Cushing that Adams would turn to in order to fill the vacancy on the court. And this is where we start to get into understanding this appointment and the political scheme of the time and what the motivations were and what Marshall's motivations were for accepting. We really do see, and it really does seem like Marshall. That was his plan. I'm going to go back to my law practice. I plan on staying in Richmond. I'm really done as of the beginning of March 1801. And there was really no reason for him to even lobby for the post of chief justice. You know, as, as we've talked about the, the court really didn't, it really wasn't seen as being a prominent position added to the fact that it wouldn't be until mid-January that Jay actually declined the post. So Jay took his time to get that word in there. So it was it was a scramble. It was mid-January, March 4th, Adams was going to be gone. Right. As explained by Smith, quote, his, i.e. Jay's delay in replying forced Adams's hand. Congress had before it a Federalist measure to revise the judiciary that would reduce the size of the Supreme Court from six justices to five. If Adams delayed naming a replacement until the bill was passed, Ellsworth's resignation in itself would reduce the size of the court, and the incoming Republican president would name the next chief justice. That left Adams almost no time to find a replacement. So even though I haven't found this 
it was highly unlikely that Cushing was in Washington at the time. And his nomination would have been risky in light of this circumstance because, like Jay, he may have declined. So putting Cushing forward was a big risk for Adams. Marshall would later relate that it was when he delivered Jay's letter to Adams that Adams reflected upon the question of, quote, who shall I nominate now? And then, quote, after a moment's hesitation, he said, I believe I must nominate you. Such a good quote. I Can you just imagine you're sitting in the outgoing president's office, you're just telling him, sorry, this guy said no, and this guy looks at you and he goes, I believe I must nominate you. Like, how do you, how do you say no? I feel like you can't. <laughs> exactly. And especially, you know, he's developed this, this close working relationship with Adams. He obviously respects him. How do you say no to that? And it's not a letter, right? I think, you know, I think what what allowed Marshall to kind of skate before and all the other posts, right, is that, oh, well, I don't have to really tell them. It's not a phone call. It's not, I'm not being flown into Washington City to have a conversation. Um, And, you know, here we go. We have the outgoing president knowing also, too, who was going to be coming into office, right? Knowing that Jefferson was going to be the next president and and the fear that was very much behind that. I just think that all of those those factors really influenced his his decision. Definitely. And that's the thing, you know, and, and whether it actually whether this is completely one hundred percent what happened or not, who's to say, but it was definitely a quick turnaround. And as you said, Alicia more than likely it was they were face to face and it is much harder to say no to somebody when it's face to face versus a letter. And so Marshall was there and he confirmed, I will say yes. And thus on January 20th, 1801, Adam submitted John Marshall's name as chief justice of the Supreme court. Marshall was confirmed on January 27th and he took his oath of office on February 4th. Again, a reflection of just how little there was for the Supreme Court to do at the time. Adams requested <laughs> and Marshall agreed to retain the role of Secretary of State through the end of Adams's term. Thus, he officially left the cabinet on March 4th, 1801. Now, before we get into this period of his life after the cabinet, as noted by historian Leonard Brown on the administrative history of the Washington and Adams presidencies, quote, Marshall served for too brief a period to impress his views of diplomatic policy upon the administration. Now, in the two books that I have that are focused solely on Adams's presidency, which were by Stephen Kurtz and Ralph Adams Brown, respectively, Marshall barely gets a mention. It'll be up to us to decide, you know, once we get to the end of this, what conclusions okay. we have on his tenure in the cabinet. But for now, though... We've got to go to what may be the most difficult part of this episode, because (laughs) as we've stated before, this is really where John Marshall is known. He's known for his tenure as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He is definitely one, if not the most influential Chief Justices of the court. And we'll touch on that. We're going to go into not as much depth as we have 
previously. Like I said, we'll have that second episode where we'll be talking with folks from the John Marshall House, focus more on this judicial career. But let's hit on some of the highlights and to something you alluded to, Alicia, let's look at kind of how he helped to reshape the court and what this means for his legacy. So with that, John Marshall got to work quickly in making his mark on the court, and he opted to start with working on the court's image. Again, there wasn't much respect for the court. There wasn't much respect for what they did, what little they did. Marshall would be the first chief justice to preside over the court in Washington, D.C., And just to show you how insignificant the court was viewed at the time, (laughs) there had been no building planned in this new city. I mean, it's all brand new. They're building all these new buildings, but they didn't build a building to house the Supreme Court. Eh, they don't really need a building. Come on. They don't need a building because (laughs) basically they went to Congress to asked them to grant space in the U.S. Capitol for the court to hold hearings, as described and by... I'm, oh, go ahead. Oops, sorry. No worries. Oh, I was just saying, too, before he came on board to the court, everybody, it was very uh, not fr- fractional. It was very fractured, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm. they weren't a cohesive unit. I'm sure we're going to get into it. And I think, again, his his ability to team build and to to really lobby to get people onto his side and, and the steps that he took really helped create it's almost like before he got there the supreme court were the articles of confederation and then with his influence and his team building and his kind of ways of moving forward as one cohesive unit he kind of turned it into this you know powerhouse definitely and that's the thing it and we're gonna see that this is yet another instance that john marshall is a rare breed for the time and and really in history you know he Mm -hmm. this was really a role you've already had three other people in this role which i mean rutledge you really can't count because he didn't even meet with the court but whatever (laughs) you had other people who were in this role and just did nothing with it and here you have john marshall coming in and he is going to revolutionize it he is going to reshape what this what the Supreme Court means, what the federal judiciary means, and what the role as chief justice means. But when he starts, they're having to beg for space. Just just (laughs) grant us a room. We just need a room. We're going to have to hear cases. Please grant us a room. As described by Smith, quote, the room assigned to the court and in which it met until 1808 was committee room two, located on the ground floor of the north wing adjacent to the main staircase. Benjamin Latrobe, the Capitol architect, described it as noisy, a half-finished committee room, meaningly furnished, and very inconvenient. The court had no library, no office space, no clerks or secretaries, and the official reporter. So they had basically nothing but this room that nobody else wanted. <laughs> Here, you can take this broom closet. Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) This is now the Supreme Court hearing room. (laughs) And so it would be with this that Marshall took his oath of office and began to preside over the court. And if anyone doubted that Marshall was bringing change to the court, they only had to look at his robes at the oath-taking ceremony to realize it. Unlike his Federalist colleagues on the court who, quote, 
were attired either in the traditional scarlet and ermine of the King's Bench or their individual academic gowns, Chief Justice Marshall was in, quote, a plain black robe in the Republican fashion of the judges of the Virginia Court of Appeals. So he was making a strong visual statement that, you know what, we're not, we're not these British jurists. We're not going towards that. We're something new. We're something different. And now, as we all know, that's the Supreme Court robes. It's just yep. plain black robes. It was clear to Marshall that the incoming Democratic-Republican leadership in both the executive and legislative branches of government had the federal judiciary in their crosshairs. And if Marshall was to work to establish and maintain the Supreme Court as a co-equal branch of the federal government, he would have to lean into his ability to work across the aisle and establish the court on the firm ground of rule of law rather than rule of party. So to this point, and, and we have this idea, you know, th- these accusations flying about from legislating from the bench, but it was really happening at this point. You know, federal mm-hmm. judges were basically ruling from the bench to favor personal and political leanings. You know, that was the norm. It was what was expected. And the Democratic Republicans had just run in the election saying, pointing to that and saying, this is why we need judicial reform. And so Marshall realized he had to pull the court out of those partisan battles if it was going to survive. So he had to start with this with his personal relationship with his fellow justices. And he had already kind of done this on a larger scale with his brief tenure in the House of Representatives. And so with only five other folks that he had to work with, it was going to be easier to see through, especially since, quote, he arranged rooms for his colleagues at Conrad and McMunn's boarding house. So on the surface, he was framing this, he was doing a a favor for his colleagues. You know, I know you're going to have to find lodging. I just went ahead and booked rooms for all of us. You're welcome. (laughs) And at the time, rooms were hard to find. The capital city was still under construction. There really weren't that many rooms to be had. However, It was a deliberate move to bring the court together under one roof so that over dinner, drinks, and conversation, they could get to know one another, discuss the cases before the court, and really establish a camaraderie that would lead to a more unified body. And Marshall's plan would play out. He would begin to reshape this culture of the court. Prior to Marshall's tenure, justices would prepare separate rulings to present, so every justice would have their own separate ruling. In the Marshall Court, however, the Supreme Court would hand down the majority opinion of the court, which would give each ruling more gravitas as a legal precedent. So again, finding this consensus of a message, this is the legal precedent here, versus, well, John Jay says this, and Bushrod Washington says this, and -and so-and-so says this, it was, this is the majority opinion in this case. Well, and and you might already be planning on getting to this, but one of the ways that he was able to do that is a, mo- a lot of the decisions he was able to convince them to to be unanimous. So mm-hmm. for a majority of the, I think he oversaw like a thousand decisions, a majority of them were unanimous, which never happens ever, as we can see in 2022. <laughs> it's always split. And I think that helped 
kind of create this precedent, right, of that's the Supreme Court needs to speak with one voice. And as he was lucky in the fact that it was a lot of unanimous decisions. But then I think that lended itself to, okay, well, we have a majority opinion and we have a minority opinion. We don't have six opinions. We have, this is kind of your your choice. And I think, again, that really impacted how the Supreme Court really just developed and its reputation increased. And he was very uh, politically astute in, in doing that. And you hit on a very key point there, Alicia, that exactly. And, and it really, it, it comes to the court he, and he knew, he realized that the court was much stronger speaking with one voice than as just a disparate cacophony of voices from the justices. And so he really wanted to harness that. And he worked to make sure that opinions came quickly Although he, and and he really focused on this idea of reaching a consensus rather than, you know, well, it's, it's gotta be my way or the highway in this consensus. No, he was like, okay, everybody else is kind of seeing things this way. Let's go with it. Let's make it unanimous. He really, he could at times take himself out of it Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that the court was stronger. Yeah, again, having that global perspective and understanding that, you know, if you have six different decisions, that's six different interpretations. And so where's the supremacy there? Why is that the Supreme Court if you don't have one way that the rest of the country should follow? You have six ways that the country could potentially follow. So Virginia could pick to pick judge number one's opinion. Uh, New Jersey could pick judge number three's opinion. And and so just understanding that and ha- and having that foresight to remove the ego from the situation and just say, okay, we'll go with majority. We'll try to make them as much, uh, as much as possible unanimous. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to kind of speak to this in only one case during his tenure as chief justice, did Marshall find himself on the losing side in a constitutional case. And that was the case of Ogden V Saunders in 1827. So, but for the majority of his time, he was with the majority. He was he was able to achieve that consensus. Now, turning back briefly to his personal life, this first decade of the 19th century saw some personal losses for Marshall. His father, Thomas Marshall, died in Mason County, Kentucky, on June 22, 1802. So, even though he had been of ill health a few years back, he thought that he may pass away. He hung on for a few more years, but he ultimately passed in 1802. Then his mother, Mary Keith Marshall, died on September 19, 1809, again in Mason County, Kentucky. His time on the court would take him away from his home in Richmond for months at a time. Nearly three months each year would be spent in Washington, and Marshall would have to ride the circuit, as it was called, and serve on the circuit court in Raleigh, North Carolina, for several weeks each year. But this time on the Supreme Court would see many important cases come before the high court, and his rulings issued on some cases would reverberate as legal precedents on up to the present day. Marbury v. Madison was the first major case to come before the court in 1803, and this involved Secretary of State Madison's decision to not send commissions to federal officials who had been confirmed by the Senate at the end of the Adams presidency. More so than the ruling on the specific case, the most important point to come out of that ruling, written by Chief Justice Marshall, 
was the establishment of this concept of judicial review. So we talked about this earlier in his career, this idea, and in this ruling, the Supreme Court decided the law passed by Congress was unconstitutional, and it established that the judiciary had the authority to strike down laws that violated the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution was supreme, period. In 1810, in the ruling in the case of Fletcher v. Peck, the court in its ruling, again written by Marshall, extended this concept of judicial review to state laws as well, thus reinforcing the concept that the state governments were subordinate to federal constitutional authority. Cases which established that cases in state courts could be appealed to the federal judiciary if they were on matters applicable to the Constitution or federal law were Martin v. Hunter's Lessee in 1817, and Cohen's v. Virginia in 1821. And another important one during this time, McCullough v. Maryland in 1819 established, in an opinion, again written by Marshall, Congress's authority to establish a federal bank under the Necessary and Proper Clause of the Constitution. Now, as his tenure as Chief Justice continued on, though they had, it, it took a time for some of these seats to become available, First, President Jefferson and then President Madison had an opportunity to appoint Democratic Republicans to the high court. They thought that this would shift the ideology of the court. But they hadn't met Marshall. (laughs) They hadn't met Marshall. Because even though in 1811 there were only two Federalists remaining on the court, Marshall and Justice Bushrod Washington, Marshall was still able to lead the court ideologically. As he proved in his legislative career, he was able to work with folks from the opposing party. But we also, before we go into kind of his later career in the the court, I did want to note that after the death of George Washington in 1799, there was this great eagerness for a biography of the first president to be written. And Marshall's colleague on the court, Associate Justice Washington, who was also George Washington's nephew, asked Marshall to take the papers that he inherited from the general and write a biography of him. So while he was reshaping the court, he was also working on this multi-volume biography of George Washington. The first two volumes were published in 1803, and three more volumes followed that. It ultimately was nearly a thousand pages, and this was the first biography of a U.S. president to be written. Now, at the time, the biography was attacked as being too partisan, but later historians have really turned to it more as a source and given it a bit more praise than it achieved at the time. But yeah, you know, you're reshaping the court. Why not write this lengthy, multi-volume biography of George Washington? Of course. I mean, this is, this is the guy that uh, did the beach reading of philosophy and law. So, of course, he had the time to write a thousand opinions and also write a thousand pages. Ron Chernow, he's coming for you. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. You've got some competition, Ron. So, part of what makes Marshall such an important part of American history and adds to his ability to reshape the court and reshape the American judicial and legal system is his length on the court. So, you know, 1800s, 18-teens, and then we get to the 1820s, and a couple of other key cases came before the court. In 1823, in an opinion, again, written by Marshall, in the case of Johnson v. McIntosh, 
the court established that the federal government had the ultimate authority to negotiate with Native nations. The next year, in the case of Gibbons v. Ogden, the court upheld congressional authority to regulate commerce under the Commerce Clause. So really starting to define this federal authority and and what it really means. He also, at this point, got involved in some other activities. And we mentioned this earlier. In 1817, Marshall joined the American Colonization Society, which was an organization that worked to send free Black Americans to Africa. So colonization is definitely, and we will be discussing it more and more as we go along in the podcast, Mm -hmm. but this was... And particularly with slave owners, this idea that, okay, well, if we're going to emancipate these enslaved individuals, they can't live here, right? They need to return to Africa. Not thinking for a second that families have been here for generations, just like your families. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. weren't African. They were American. This was their home. But they saw this as the only way to achieve emancipation. So Marshall was one of those folks. In fact, he believed so strongly in this cause that he purchased a life membership in 1819. He also established a local branch of the ACS in the Richmond area in 1823. And when an internal dispute developed in the organization a few years later, Marshall helped found an independent Virginia Society for Colonization in 1827. So Marshall was gung-ho for colonization. While Marshall pinpointed slavery as one of the factors hindering Virginia's ability to progress, and, and, and that's the thing, like you see this point in Virginia's history that the state is just on this kind of slow decline. They're just not able to get the economic engines running. Mm-hmm. Even though he saw this as a problem, he was also an active slaveholder for the remainder of his life, and it seems that the family did come to acquire a good number of enslaved individuals over the years. Some came through inheritance, such as when John Marshall inherited the Oak Hill estate after his father's death in 1802, but it does seem, however, that Marshall was engaged in the buying and selling of enslaved individuals throughout his life. We'll have more to say about that in a few moments. (laughs) The end of the 1820s would see some key developments that would in turn impact the Marshall Court, because in 1828, Marshall would preside over a convention in Virginia to discuss internal improvements, and the following year, Marshall was elected as a delegate to a state constitutional convention, and he would use this opportunity to speak to the importance of an independent judiciary. So at this point, the 1820s, you start to get politicians who are saying, you know what, these justices, these judges are appointed for life. That's wrong. We need some more checks and balances. Yeah, they can be impeached, but we saw how that turned out. You know, we tried impeaching judges and they got acquitted. And so this would ultimately rise to the presidential election in 1828 and the president who came to office in 1829 Andrew Jackson was very much for this idea that judges should be elected, not appointed. Mm -hmm. Though Jackson did, was ultimately not able to really change that aspect of the federal judiciary, he did demonstrate his contempt for what was supposed to be a co-equal branch of government 
with his response to the court's ruling in Worcester v. Georgia in 1832. And so this case related to the conviction of a non-Native individual being present on Native lands, and these lands were the Cherokee in this case, this violated a Georgia state law which prohibited that residency without a license, and the opinion of the court, which was again written by Marshall, proclaimed that this conviction was void as the state of Georgia did not have the authority to make any laws respecting the Cherokee. Now, The court didn't really put an official onus on the federal government to act in the case, but it did order the release of the individual who had been convicted, as well as an associate who had also been convicted. And this order was just ignored by the Georgia state government. So normally at this point, the federal government and the executive branch would intervene to make sure that the court's order was upheld and followed through. Jackson's administration did nothing. They're more like guidelines anyway. Exactly. <laughs> we don't really we don't really have to do that, do we? <laughs> and so Georgia also continued to act in Cherokee affairs despite the case declaring that to be unconstitutional. And Jackson did nothing about that either. He was perfectly fine with Georgia just doing whatever they wanted. By the point this case was coming before the court, Marshall was beginning to decline in health. Late 1831 saw him traveling to Philadelphia to undergo an operation to remove bladder stones. Though Marshall would recover and returned home to Richmond in mid-November, upon his arrival, he found that his long-suffering wife, Polly, had taken a turn for the worse in his absence. As her condition continued to worsen, John would remain by her bedside until, on December 25, 1831, Polly Ambler Marshall passed away at their home in Richmond. Marshall would live a few more years, but ultimately, traveling to Philadelphia again for a medical consultation, he passed away there on July 6, 1835, at the age of 79. By this point, he had been Chief Justice for over 34 years and had seen six presidents come and go. So, before we start to discuss his life and legacy, Thinking of his impact, you know, first of all, first and foremost, we only have to look at the Supreme Court and that it is seen as being a co-equal branch of the federal government to say that Marshall had a major influence on American history. In terms of his physical legacy, again, I'll be speaking with two folks from the John Marshall House in Richmond. This home was placed in the perpetual care of Preservation, Virginia in 1911 and has been operated as a museum ever since. It was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1960. His birthplace was established as the John Marshall Birthplace Park in 1978. Marshall was also memorialized on treasury notes issued in 1890 and 1891, as well as a 1914 series of $500 Federal Reserve notes. He was featured on a commemorative silver dollar in 2005, as well as a $5 postage stamp in 1894 and a $0.40 Liberty Issue postage stamp in 1955. A bronze statue of Marshall was unveiled in 1884 and, after originally being placed on the West Plaza of the U.S. Capitol, was moved to the ground floor of the U.S. Supreme Court building after its construction in the 1930s. Copies of this statue are also in John Marshall Park in Washington, D.C. and on the grounds of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. 
Marshall, Michigan was named after him five years before his death. Since then, numerous counties in the Midwest were named in his honor. He's also the namesake of Marshall College, which was opened in 1836 and became Franklin and Marshall College after a merger in 1853. Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, the Cleveland Marshall College of Law, and the John Marshall Law School in Atlanta are also named after him. Now, the institution which is now known as the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law, was previously known as the John Marshall Law School. But on May 20th, 2021, after evidence presented by historian Paul Finkelman about Marshall's active engagement in the enslavement of individuals throughout his life and what Finkelman described as his quote-unquote pro-slavery jurisprudence, they decided to change their name. So as we're seeing with some of our other cabinet members, they're starting to have this legacy and and really looking at their legacy as slave owners and starting to have memorials and namings be changed because it's a reflection of the institution and the institution's values. And so this institution decided we don't want to be associated with John Marshall. But with that, we are at the end of the life of John Marshall. And now comes the time to kind of look at, from various angles, his life and career, starting with the whole picture category. So with the whole picture, this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And for each of us, we can award up to 10 points maximum. So Alicia, given what we talked about thus far, what are your initial thoughts on Marshall and his career? Well, his overall life and career, I think, cannot be, uh, there is no way around it. He was one of the most influential members of the the founding era, right? Um, He, without him and his tutelage and his leadership and his guidance, we would not have the Supreme Court that we have today. So I would have to say he's got to get a 10 for me because again like when I was here talking about Alexander Hamilton you you can't deny his impact it's still felt today so I'm going to go ahead and give him a 10 and I agree with you Alicia I think that and as I started the series I started thinking okay well who are the the 10s who are the ones who are going to get full points and John Marshall is definitely one of those. There is no denying his impact on the court, on American history, on American government. And we still have cases from that time being cited as legal precedent today on a pretty regular basis. You know, mm-hmm. this this established a foundation. And so I I think he is definitely a 10. So that starts him off very strong with a 20. <laughs> Woohoo. But now this is where we start to break things down a bit. And the whole purpose of him being as part of this special series is his cabinet tenure. So with the go get around, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And again, we can award up to 10 points total. 
Okay, this one's harder for me because he had such a limited time frame while in the cabinet. I think he did some great work while he was in the cabinet, but as even I think one of the historians you quoted said, it's it, it doesn't it just doesn't make a blimp in the radar. And so I think I'm gonna have to give him very very minuscule points. Uh, I'm going with a three. And this is one of the toughest things about this because, I mean, it it feels <laughs> wrong to give John Marshall low marks, but yes. he really, it's just, it's a matter of timing. He really yeah. did not have enough time to make a large impact as a cabinet member. Right. It was good that he was there. Adams finally had somebody he could trust and support. He could, he could go back to Quincy. He could focus on other matters and know that Marshall was going to be doing what he charged him to do versus whatever he wanted, like Pickering. But he really did not have the time to make a large impact. And so I think I'm actually going to be a, a little harsher and I'm going to give him a two. Okay. And again, that feels wrong, but <laughs> I I don't think there's any way around it. Yeah, no. And so that has him at 25. But now we've got a question to ask ourselves in the hot seat round, because the hot seat round discusses any disgraceful behavior of our actions committed by the cabinet member. And this does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And so here is where we can deduct up to 10 points each from Marshall's score. Okay, so this one's also challenging for me because I'm trying not to put 2022 biases on a man who lived, you know, almost 300 years ago. Uh, the, the holding of the slavery, the, the holding of slaves, really, uh, I think it's, I got to give him something for it. I'm sorry. I, I understand that he might have been a quote unquote nice owner, but he still owned human beings. So yeah. as much as I do want to try to put on a proper historical lens, I gotta I gotta give him some some negative marks for that. Well, and and we've had these conversations with other cabinet members, you know, who have enslaved individuals. You know, there's there's really no quantifying this. I mean, it, slavery right. was evil, and right. John Marshall participated in it. I mean, there's no proper quantification of this, and it really comes to trying to think through it. And this is where it comes to how does it compare to other folks? How does it compare to that? you know, what was going on at the time. And then also taking into consideration that this isn't just about this one aspect, but was there anything else that was disgraceful? Right. And for some folks there, there's much to discuss. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and so for me, I compare, you know, what is known about his ownership of other human beings to what is known about other people's ownerships of human beings such as, I don't know, a guy who was third president of the United States. So, One of his cousins. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't mean to to diminish or belittle, but I, I feel like I, I, I can't give him a 10 for that because, mm. it, again, he was working within 
the what what was accepted in society and but it was wrong at, but nothing else in in terms of you know his his actions throughout his life as far as you know I know and far of what we've talked about today so I'm trying to be fair and I'm gonna say because of the the ownership of the human beings I want to I want to take off six points and that's the thing like it really it becomes so because we've had these conversations uh, in other episodes and trying to kind of understand because Thomas Jefferson got, I believe he got full marks in this one because he was actively racist. He was promoting racism and you don't necessarily get that from Marshall, but you also don't get the sense that, you know, he, he was part of the colonization society. He argued that slavery should be ended, but you don't necessarily get from him that it was for an ethical reason as much as, well, this is just a flawed economic model and oh, by the way, if we do free these people who we've enslaved, we just need to send them elsewhere. And so, clearly, a white supremacist, right? Yes. But that wasn't necessarily, again, trying to put not put the twenty twenty two lens on it. That that was not a an uncommon belief, right? Yeah. There was this belief that white men were above and beyond any other member of society. And so, yeah, that's what I, that's where I struggled. So I'm curious to see how many marks you take off. Cause I might, I might alter it. Cause I was, I was debating between uh, a couple of numbers. <laughs> and I think one of the things to take into consideration, and again, you, you've got, this is John Marshall. And I don't think that we can, take that out of the picture here. He was somebody who had such an influence in so many other respects. And so the fact that he didn't, and, and, and he had a brilliant mind. I mean, he had a brilliant mind, but this, I, I think that we do have to take that into consideration. If John Marshall had, started to work towards emancipation. If John Marshall had started to promote abolition and, and ending slavery, if he had really worked towards it, I mean, we see in his career so many times, so many other things that he was able to achieve. You really think that, you know, it, it may not have gotten all the way there, but it certainly would have gotten further along. Right. And so I think I think I am going to have to match you on the 6. Okay. Uh, I think that it it's definitely the it's definitely a big flaw in Marshall's legacy that mm-hmm. you know on this one thing he was so revolutionary in so many other ways but on this no. He yep. wasn't there, and he he 
did nothing to get there. And so yep. I, I think, I think I, I think I agree with you there. So that brings him down to 13 points. Okay. Which it happens from time to time. And it does. I, I think, I think that really, I think that's fair. Yep. But now he has a chance to earn, pick up a few more points, possibly. Um, so first of all, tenure of office. So we do give points for the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. Now with Marshall. <laughs> That's a stretch. He's, he's not going to get much here yep. because he assumed office on um, June 13th, 1800. He left office on March 4th, 1801. So rounding that gets him one point. (laughs) (laughs) But every point counts. So he's got that one point. Now we do also award some bonus points. None of these he will get, but (laughs) he do award bonus points. He wasn't in multiple administrations. He He, he, never became president. (laughs) He didn't serve in more than one full-time cabinet position. He, He was in one administration and he never became president. So he does not earn any points there. So that means that his final score is 14. Okay. So with that said, Alicia, after all I've shared about John Marshall's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? Okay. Well, so here's where I go with this. Obviously, he had an impact. Obviously, he is one of the most influential Americans in history. However, if we're talking specifically about the seat at the table for the cabinet all-stars, right? So I'm going to, I have to compare his, his tenure with the gentleman who I was here to discuss with you last time, Alexander Hamilton. There's no contest, right? There's, he just, he did some stuff and he did great stuff and, and he exerted great diplomacy, but he didn't really have any other lasting impacts as a cabinet member. So if we're talking about just the seat at the table for cabinet all-stars, I'm going to say as much as it breaks my heart, no, he does not deserve a seat at the table. And you hit on the exact point. It's if this was a seat at the Supreme Court (laughs) all-stars. Yes. (laughs) Of course. I mean, his name is already on the is already on the seat. It's already embossed, engraved on a He's plaque, whatever. He <laughs> he has the largest seat at the table. Yes. But for the cabinet all stars, no. He just and and it's not to say that he this really is one of those instances. I mean, there are so many cabinet members that you're like, no more time would have impacted that they just they were what they were with marshall if marshall had been secretary of state for even four years even just the adams Mm -hmm. term i think that he would have made a large enough impact that he would have been a yes however with less than a year and at the very end of the administration and a good chunk of that adams was a lame duck Right. 
he just doesn't earn it. So we're sorry, John Marshall, you're going to have to find that seat elsewhere at another table. (laughs) But with that, we come to the end of this episode. And Alicia, I cannot thank you enough for your time and your insight that you always bring. I knew that this was going to be a lengthy recording. And so I greatly appreciate more so than even usual (laughs) your time for this. But I hope that I hope that this has been a great experience for you to get to know a bit more about Marshall and to really understand that impact a bit more. I know for me doing the research, it just mm-hmm. it really helped me to, you know, Marshall's one of those figures that I just keep coming back to, but wasn't right. able to really connect the whole story. And so for me, this has been this has been a very valuable experience and, and a very worthwhile experience. And I hope it has been for you as well. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Like we said, like I said before we started recording, you know, I, I knew enough about his his second act, we'll say, and knew knew his impact to the Supreme Court and all all of that. Um, but I was very weak on his early life and his early career, so I found all of this uh, completely fascinating. It really fleshes out the picture of who he was and and really I think even provided for me more context of of how he became who he who he was. So yeah, I didn't I didn't mind. This was a great way to spend a, a few hours. So I loved it. Thanks for having me. Well thank you so much. And for our listeners out there, please go and check out Civics and Coffee if you're not a regular listener already. I will have information about Civics and Coffee on the social media for the podcast around this release. And so once you're done with this episode, go and check it out and then come back here. And we're going to have a second episode talking a bit more about John Marshall, really focusing in on that time on the court and his legal impact that getting to that second act, as you said, Alicia, (laughs) but thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support and until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.